This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome to the Equip Podcast again. My name is Mark Vance. I'm the lead pastor of Cornerstone Church here in Ames, Iowa, and glad to be with you. What we're going to be doing on the Equip Podcast for the next couple weeks is a bit unique. We're actually going to have a multi-week series. We're going to be addressing in that series uh, a subject that has come up often to me, and it really is the subject of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and the Christian faith. Recently, I read a book that I thought was one of the best I've, I've read on this. It was a book by Sam, Sam Albury um, titled, Is God Anti-Gay? I mean, that really gets to the heart of the cultural question that we're living in right now. Is God just against people? And so I want to try to give a careful answer, thoughtfully and biblically, to this question. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's important because this is the question that Undoubtedly, if you're in a college or university town, you're having raised to you by non-believers, but it's one that is unavoidable now, I think, in general Christian culture and particularly in the West, in America. Tim Keller, writing in 2013, when he was reviewing uh, some books on the subject, wrote, the relationship of homosexuality to Christianity is without doubt one of the main subjects of cultural controversy in conversation today. If you are a Christian in New York City, it is nearly impossible to talk about your faith without this subject being raised. Here's what I'd say now. In 2022, if you are a Christian in the West, in America, in any place where people are uh, addressing the questions of the day, if you're in a university town or a city or anywhere, it will be nearly impossible to talk about your faith without this subject being raised. Across America, we've seen the question of how you deal with LGBTQ issues. Are you affirming? Are you celebrating? How do you answer the question of what the Bible teaches about homosexuality is dividing Christian denominations at this point. We're going to see the United Methodist Church split over this issue, where liberal um, American churches are going to split off from the more conservative churches led by a large African delegation that upholds the traditional biblical teaching here. So, if you are a Christian in any place, it will be nearly impossible to talk about your faith without the subject being raised. The way I explain it to people sometimes is, in the past, the apologetic or questions about the Christian faith issues that I wrestled with were around creation and evolution. They're around the subject of intelligent design or whether you can trust the Bible. Now, I'm telling you, working with college students, this is the question that I get asked. Is God anti-gay? So, the phrasing of that question kind of puts you in this position where culturally you're being told you only have two choices. Either you hate or you celebrate. Either you support and affirm your LGBTQ friends and you stand by them in this issue of justice to affirm their essential humanity, or you teach traditional hateful doctrines that push people into bullying and hate. You have two options, and either you're for it or against it. Either you hate or you celebrate. You've got to pick the one. And that puts conservative, traditional, Bible-believing Christians in this place where they feel like, what am I supposed to do? Does the Bible really teach this? How do I deal with this? And so what we want to do over the course of the next couple weeks is I want to call you to conviction and compassion, both and, not either or. I want to suggest that there are not two choices in this. 
but that you can faithfully hold to a historic biblical sexual ethic, and you can do so with deep kindness, compassion, and love. You can exist alongside of your neighbors in the pluralistic liberal society of America and honor all men while at the same time not affirming the sinful lifestyle choices of all men. You cannot choose as a Christian to compromise scripture and celebrate a homosexual lifestyle that scripture rejects. But on the other side, you cannot compromise scripture by being angry, mean, bullying, and hateful in the way that you live toward others. There is a place where you can be both full of compassion and full of conviction to take the cue of Christ to be full of grace and truth. And so what we're going to do over the next couple weeks is try to articulate a compassionate, convictional place in regard to how we answer questions around homosexuality and same-sex attraction. What I'm going to do is start out and spend some time over the first couple of these podcasts. We're going to deal with the biblical texts and answer the question, does the Bible really actually address homosexuality, and how does it do that when it does? But then from there, I want to move from text to life, and I want to really dialogue around how do we model compassion? I want to have one of these uh, podcasts be really directed toward a person who might be struggling with same-sex attraction, who, who would ask the question, if you're telling me I can't practice this, aren't you being incredibly cruel? Aren't you telling me to cut off a piece of my humanity, of my essence? I, I want to talk toward that question. What, what can we do to help our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction to be welcomed into the church, but yet also held to the standard of living the Bible holds us to? And then also, ultimately, I want to help a lot of people who, I lo- who have relationships with people they love, who are themselves practicing homosexuals. You might have a friend or a family member. You might be invited to a wedding of a same-sex couple. What do you do there? How do you live with conviction and compassion? And again, over and over, I want to say, you need to reject this false choice that you're being given currently, culturally, that either you celebrate or you hate. There's a way to honor and respect people that you disagree with. In civil society, there's a way to live with truth and grace. So there's the intro. Before I go further, I'm just going to mention these. There are four primary resources that I recommend to people over and over when we talk about the Bible, homosexuality, LGBTQ issues in general. The first is that book, Is God Anti-Gay? by Sam Alberry, And I want to put that name out there, Sam Alberry. Sam is currently on staff in Nashville as a pastor of a church. Sam is also an individual who has lived his entire adult life as a single celibate Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. And Sam Albury's ministry has been profoundly helpful. In fact, he uh, started a website. It's called Living Out livingout.org. And I recommend this to you as well as a resource. So many good articles, but also videos of people who are being honest with where they're at. The third resource I want to recommend is a book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. Christopher Yuan was himself also a practicing homosexual and now is a theology teacher, and he has written the book that I think is the best explanation of sex, desire, and God's grand story that I've ever seen. It's called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. The fourth resource is a little book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. It does an excellent job of simply walking you through the biblical passages. Final resource is just another person. I think Rosaria Butterfield, 
She was formerly a queer studies professor at Syracuse University who was converted to Christ and now is a Presbyterian pastor's wife and writes extensively on Christianity and culture. culture. Rosaria Butterfield is incredibly helpful, too. All of those people's writings have influenced what I will say here. And when I walk through the biblical texts, I'm going to lean on their writing, even if I don't explicitly footnote it. So, without further ado, let's dive into this question. What does the Bible really say about homosexuality? I mean, does it really talk about it? Here's the way you're going to hear this question put on you. You're going to hear it said this, the Bible really hardly ever mentions homosexuality. You've only got like five biblical texts, and even those are pretty obscure, and we don't really know what they mean. Jesus never talked about it, so why in the world are we making such a big deal about something the Bible is basically silent on? That's the implication. Since Scripture is quiet or unclear, then we should just act in love and compassion and let people live how they would like. Now, how do, you, how do we wrestle with that? The first is to be honest. There are five explicit passages, two in the Old Testament, Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Leviticus 18 and 20, which are inside of the sexual ethic passages in the Levitical codes. Those are the two Old Testament passages. And then one primary text in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, and then two, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, where uh, the particular words of Malakoi and Arsenokoi uh, are, are referenced. Okay, so those are in total five specific texts. So when people say there's only five texts that specifically address homosexuality, that is true, but also very, very limited. Let me give you an example. It doesn't make a big point. For instance, let me ask you this. Does the Bible forbid polygamy? So, if you were to look into that, you might end up saying the exact same thing. You know, actually, if you read the whole of the the Bible, um, the New Testament doesn't explicitly forbid polygamy. So, we don't really even have any words from Jesus on polygamist relationships, you know, I mean, we got the one kind of obscure passage with Herod marrying, you know, his brother-in-law or whose brother-in-law, you know, and sister, but it's pretty obscure. I mean, we actually have an example with Abraham, the patriarch, where he had multiple wives. In, I mean, we've got a couple Levitical codes, but I guess maybe the Bible doesn't. So who are we to judge our polygamist friends who have multiple wives? Okay, what is the flaw with that line of reasoning? The flaw is this. It assumes that the way a Bible talks about something, if it doesn't explicitly condone some bad thing, then it is offering an endorsement of it. That's, that's a false choice. What we really need to ask is the bigger question, not does the Bible forbid polygamy, but what does the Bible teach about sexuality and marriage? That's precisely the question that we need to ask when we come to the question of homosexuality. We shouldn't start by totaling a tally of how many texts explicitly forbid homosexuality. Instead, we should ask this question first. What does the overarching story of Scripture tell us about human sexuality? So before we get into any specific texts that address homosexuality, we should first ask the question, Does the Bible have a vision for sexual expression? Does it teach that? And in that case, we're going to consult 
two things before we consider any critical text on homosexuality. We first have to consider the storyline of Scripture, and then secondly, we need to consider how the church has read those texts over the history of the Christian church. We need to look to the story of Scripture and the story of church history. Okay, so first, let's talk about the storyline of Scripture. And it is in this case that I think, by the way, this is far and away the strongest case for a biblical sexual ethic, because the story of human sexuality and of marriage is told throughout Scripture. It is actually one of the grand themes of Scripture. So we don't just have five Bible verses about homosexuality. We have a consistent testimony of Scripture that teaches us about sexuality. You could summarize the consistent approach that the whole of the canon, Old Testament and New Take, around sexuality summarized this way. One man, one woman, one flesh. One man, one woman, one flesh. And that storyline begins in the opening pages of Scripture. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following, you'll read that God made man in his image. He created them in the image of God, male and female. And then he says to those male and female expressions of image bearing, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If God had only created one man, he could not go to Adam with the command and say, Adam, go be fruitful and multiply, because Adam cannot multiply himself. Likewise, if he had created Adam and Bill, Adam and Bill could not be fruitful and multiply, because there is no capacity of offspring bearing through same-sex expression. Adam and Bill could be great friends. They could not produce offspring. And so in the beginning of all, God says his design of humanity has complementary parts that work together, male and female that fit together. I'm going to quote here from Tim Keller when he writes on this. In Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things that are made to work together, heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. If you go beyond Genesis 1 into Genesis 2, you see Adam naming the animals who come together two by two with parts that are complementary but different. It is part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things are made to unite and create dynamic wholes that can generate more and more life and beauty through their relationship. As N.T. Wright points out, the creation and uniting of male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of this diverse but complementary thing coming together. That means male and female have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things the other cannot. Sex was created by God as a way to mingle those strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. Marriage is the most intense, though not the only place, where this reunification of male and female takes place in human life. Male and female reshape, learn from, and work together. Therefore, here's Keller's summary. In one of the great ironies of late modern times, when we celebrate diversity in so many other cultural sectors, we have truncated the ultimate unity and adversity that we see in all of creation, the intergendered marriage of male and female. That's incredibly profound. When we begin talking about human sexuality, we need to understand the very foundation of God's design of people is that they are different gendered. 
and that man and woman, as they come together to be one flesh, can produce more than any individual person could, or more than any same-sex couple could. So the Bible, it goes on. The first lyrics of the Bible are a love song between a man and his soon-to-be wife. We have a whole book of the Bible that talks about sexuality between a man and his bride, Song of Songs. Really, the entire plotline of Scripture finds its culmination in the love story that ends with a couple, Christ and his bride, living happily ever after in Revelation 21. Ephesians 5 talks about the unification of man and woman as a display of God's glory and a picture of Christ's love for his church. Man and woman, every one of those texts that talk about sexuality never picture homosexual union. They always picture a different sexual union between man and woman in the confines of marriage. So Sam Albury writes in his God Anti-Gay, while homosexuality is not mentioned all that often in the Bible, the biblical vision for the union of different genders in marriage is one of the Bible's main themes. It is everywhere. From the book of Genesis to Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, marriage is presented consistently and only as between a man and a woman as the only divinely designed place for sexual relationship to occur. Throughout the Bible, heterosexual marriage is the human construct most often used to reveal truths about God's relationship to his people. The Bible starts with the wedding between Adam and Eve, and it will end with the wedding between Christ and the church. I'm saying this many different ways, but here's the summary. The same storyline of sexual expression is the foundation throughout the whole Bible, Marriage is between a man and a woman for the purpose of pleasure, friendship, procreation, and union. It is a symbolic foretaste of the great union between Christ and his church. And sexual expression is to happen only within that God-designed boundary. One man, one woman, one flesh, till death do us part. Therefore, any sexual expression that happens outside of that normative design of God, whether it would be adultery, polygamy, homosexuality, is never endorsed, and it is always condemned in the Bible. Let me give an illustration, maybe to cap this point. Think of your kitchen. Your kitchen has various tools that are designed with ultimate purposes. So you have a knife that's designed to cut things. You have forks that are designed to kind of stick and hold up things. And when you use one tool in a way that it is not designed for, you can cause great damage. A blender is great for smoothies. It is bad for steaks. I mean, just imagine blending up a New York strip to serve to your family. Disgusting. Misuse causes damage. In God's world, he has designed tools with purposes. He's designed humans with purposes. So sexuality is good and holy and right and safe when it is used as it is to be designed. However, if we misuse the tool, we will end up with a bad result. So our first question should not be, how many passages does the Bible actually have in it that address homosexuality? The first and primary question that we have to wrestle with is, what does God say about the tool of human expression through the whole of Scripture? And what you find is consistently, Scripture says one man, one woman, inside marriage, for life, is the only place where sexual expression is to be allowed. And no other practice of sexuality, homosexuality or other, is endorsed or allowed. Every mention in the Bible, it is explicitly forbidden. So, 
My point before you ever get into any specific text about homosexuality, you first have to consider the whole of Scripture's testimony about homosexuality. Now, there's one other addendum I'm going to put on this first part of our discussion, which is this. When it comes to how we read Scripture, Christians never read Scripture in a historical vacuum. In other words, we don't simply come to the text as modern people, and no one has ever read it before. We're reading a book that other Christians have been reading for millennia, thousands of years now. So when we go to interpret controversial matters, we need to be very careful not to come up with a novel, creative, and modern idea that the church has rejected for millennia. Now, just because Christians have held a position in the past doesn't mean it's right. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, when Christians across various denominations have read texts a certain way, we need incredibly strong evidence to reject their historic reading. And in this case, when it comes to the question of human sexuality, that basic stance that it is to be one man, one woman, one flesh for life, that has been the universally held position by every branch of Christianity Protestant, and Catholic for thousands of years. It has been the universally accepted standard that sexual activity is to happen within the borderlines and boundaries of a heterosexual marriage. That has not just been true of conservative churches starting in the 90s. No, that's been true of every church in every denomination. To be frank with you, we realistically don't begin to see many people who would claim the name of Christ or want to be inside of a church, endorse homosexual unions or homosexual activity, that whole movement starts in North America and in Western Europe in the late 20th century. After millennia of the church reading the text one way, they begin to change. And what drove those theological shifts was not a new discovery on the biblical text, but new pressures coming from a changing culture. Okay? So it's very important for me to summarize what we've just held here. We haven't even gotten into any of the biblical text, but we have already made what I believe are the two strongest arguments against homosexual practice being allowed. The Bible, in its overall storyline, always tells the same story about marriage and about sexuality. That marriage and sexuality. Sexual union is to happen inside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And then secondly, that overarching biblical storyline has been the historic and universally accepted position of the Christian church, not just recently, but for millennia. Even today, it is still the standard position of the Roman Catholic Church. It is the standard position of every conservative Christian denomination. What has happened in our day is not that we've discovered new things about the biblical text that drove us to make changes. Rather, under cultural pressure to compromise and accommodate, Christians have tried to find novel ways to reread the biblical text to keep them from being in a place that would be culturally unpopular. So, the argument from the biblical whole and the argument from the history of the church are very strong to say that homosexual practice is forbidden and is sinful. Now, 
next podcast recording, if you tune in on Equip, we're going to dive into those five texts. And I'm going to try to give a careful reading of them and some brief comment to help you understand what does the Bible say in its specific texts that address homosexuality and how are we to understand how we should live in light of that. This is an unavoidable question, friends. And so we deal with this to try to chart a path to say, let's hold biblical conviction and let's hold it with consistent compassion. In all these things, let's live with truth and with grace. 